welcome to Ask the Experts. So Digital Cafe, very casual. And um, I'm we're hosting Dr. Jessica Weaver. She's an assistant professor at biomedical of biomedical engineering, the School of Biological and Health Systems Engineering at ASU, otherwise known as Arizona State University in Tempe. And her research centers on developing translatable cell-based therapies for the treatment of disease with a focus on cell therapies to induce tolerance and transplantation for the treatment of type 1 diabetes. So the Weber Lab uses biomaterials and immune engineering approaches with the aim um, to generate immunosuppression-free transplantation strategies. Dr. Weaver uh, earned her PhD in uh, BME at University of Miami with Cherie Stabler uh, prior to completing a postdoctoral fellowship at Georgia Tech with Andreas Garcia, and she was supported uh, by the NIH ILET II training grant and the JDRF postdoctoral fellowship. And Dr. Weaver um, is uh, currently a recipient of the NIH Director's New Innovator Award, which is really an interesting award and is a real shout out to what she's actually doing in this space. So I'm not sure why, but can you say hi, uh, Jessica? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Now you you took center stage there. So yeah, so let's let's talk about what's going on um, in your lab. And you have a long list of publications uh, that came out of University of Miami with Sri Stabler and also Camilla Ricordi. Um, so some heavy hitters and some excellent papers. Um, it looks like you know you've got like kind of two two things going on in your lab. You've got like islet my, micro encapsula, uh, macro encapsulation design and immunomodular uh, Terry uh, trophoblast-based therapy. You got two things sort of going on. Is that right? Yeah, and actually I kind of, I, I prepared a PowerPoint. Should I scare, uh, share screen? Absolutely. So yeah, so, um, you know, the main focus of my lab is really trying to eliminate immune suppression and cell therapies to treat type one diabetes, cell therapies in general, but the main focus has always been to treat type one diabetes. Um, and so I'll be talking a little bit about um, All right, Um, so my lab really focuses on using engineering approaches. We're an engineering laboratory um, and trying to use mainly biomaterials, but any sort of engineering approach to translate um, cell therapies as a treatment for type one diabetes. And so there's some critical challenges that um, engineering can be used to address um, that face the field of cell therapies. One of the big ones that I'm gonna be talking about a lot is um, the need for systemic immunosuppression, um, which is uh, probably, I would say the biggest challenge. Um, But there's been, you know, some other um, issues that I've worked on over the years and continue to work on, including where to transplant these cells. So the transplant site, um, as we start to develop maybe devices to transplant these cells in, we start to have issues with nutrient transport um, islets are one of the most highly metabolic cells in the body. So nutrient transport, access to oxygen becomes a huge issue. And then there's a number of other issues related to trying to translate these into the clinic and um, different strategies to get these um, uh, cell therapies into the clinic. And then of course, um, you know, cell sourcing and donor shortages, which is of all of these challenges, the only area I don't work in because that's a huge area <laughs> unto itself. But um, of course, there's um, just within the last couple of weeks, we've seen um, a lot of data coming out from these cell therapies that are uh, moving towards the market and going through clinical trials. So that's very exciting and definitely an area we'd love to collaborate with people in, you know, basically applying their cell therapy products in our, in our devices and our strategies. Um, but really what, what it all comes down to, and, and after um, about 14 years of working in this space, 
really the biggest hurdle to um, getting a cell therapy into the clinic is going to be this issue of chronic systemic immunosuppression. And really that's because the risk benefit doesn't make sense for the vast majority of type one diabetics, right? Um, the side effects associated with systemic immunosuppression are much more um, dangerous to a type one diabetic than especially if they're well controlled, the long-term side effects of type one diabetes, right? And, yeah. Um, and I so mean, that's, uh, the, you know, they just had that big splash in the New York times with the patient, uh, you know, first in human, which is great, you know, but that was an older man and a lot of, um, you know, newly diagnosed uh, type one diabetics are, are children. So if you can't imagine like that level of immune suppression for a lifetime, so I totally, um, you know, this is, this is, this is uh, to me, it seems to be the biggest, the biggest issue. Absolutely. And, and, you know, compounding that the autoimmunity makes it so much worse too. So we're, we have to have special immunosuppression regimens just to um, get islets to engraft and function. And even then, I, you know, I don't know if uh, this number is out of date, but the last number I have for how long a typical islet graft, like a cadaveric islet donor <laughs> graft would last in a patient, or at least keep a patient off of insulin, the median graft, median graft life is only about 35 months. I think the data is a little bit better now with that, but um, I'm not sure what the, the new numbers are, but 35 months off of off of insulin. Now they still have residual function, which is great, um, but it's that that graft loss, underlying immune immune mechanisms and immune rejection that's going on that um, even with strong immunosuppression, we're not able to combat, right? And so really, if we could eliminate um, the need for systemic immunosuppression, potentially induce tolerance towards these grafts, um, then really it would be much more feasible to apply this as a treatment for type 1 diabetes. Um, and so really that's kind of where all of my efforts have, have moved towards, because if we can't get over that hurdle, I, you know, I still work in all of this other space, it all kind of goes together, but my, my biggest uh, concern is getting past this um, immune barrier. Um, and so just to kind of walk you through the last 14 years of how I got, my lab has gotten to where it is now. Um, and we're still a relatively new lab. My lab's only been open for about three years, about two of which have been during a pandemic. So it's been a bit challenging. Um, but where I started was um, with Dr. Sherry Stabler at the Diabetes Research Institute in Miami, um, which is a renowned diabetes institute. So it was a really great place to start in, in the um, islet transplant space. Yeah. We had a lot of resources, a lot of really um, people who knew a lot about the problem, right? And so the, the bulk of my dissertation, my graduate work in Sherry's lab focused on sort of the innate side of, of the immune response in islet transplantation, so battling inflammation. And so um, one of the main reasons that we focused on the innate immune response or inflammation um, in the islet microenvironment is because islets have a uh, much lower innate ability to combat inflammation and uh, stressors like that. Um, they have lower levels of antioxidant enzymes. And so um, they're just not uh, prepared to be thrust into a high in inflammation environment. And so in traditional um, islet transplantation and how it's still done experimentally, I'm sure many all you know, <laughs> um, is islets are, uh, cadaveric islets are isolated from a donor pancreas and then infused into the portal vein of the liver where they can spread out into this branching vasculature and become um, entrapped in this vasculature and hopefully secrete insulin in response to blood glucose. But the problem with that is um, we now know that there's this instant blood mediated inflammatory response. So this instant inflammatory response to the islets 
um, and the eyelids are not equipped to handle that inflammation. And then on top of that, you have all of these mechanical stressors that eyelids are also not prepared for. They don't see that normally in the pancreas. They're shoved into a little vessel and then they're constantly getting pounded by the blood, uh, um, by you know, blood pressure. And so all of these things combined lead to, now we know about 60% um, of um, cells lost almost immediately <laughs> upon transplantation. And so essentially when we're infusing eyelids into the liver, we're practically throwing them away, right? This is not ideal. Um, and that's why it takes between two and four donor pancreatic typically to reverse a type one diabetic and get them off of insulin. Um, and so that's not ideal. And so um, Sherry's lab, I was one of the first PhD students in her lab. She was really focusing on, you know, where can we put these islets and how can we deliver these islets in a way um, that's outside of the liver and in, a, in a, um, the context of less inflammation and hopefully preserve more of these islets that we're transplanting. Ideally, 100% would survive the transplant process. Um, and so some of our first work in this space was, or well, Sherry's lab started with developing these um, silicone porous scaffolds that the islets could be seeded in and then transplanted into a um, non-liver space. So tissue outside of the liver, extra hepatic tissue. And so um, we used a, a model, a mouse model, and we used uh, the epididymal fat pad, which is essentially the murine equivalent of the human omentum, which is a um, highly vascularized organ that isn't usually talked about in anatomy and physiology courses. It's considered vestigial um, because they don't know what it does, kind of like the, the appendix. But it's, it's um, got some interesting features that it may be a little bit um, immune privileged. Uh, it's very highly vascularized. So it has some features that, that might be um, positive for islet transplantation. And so we delivered these islets and um, these scaffolds to these uh, epididymal fat pads and saw reversal. And then um, to take it a step further to combat any possible inflammation that um, might be seen in the site, perhaps in response to the scaffold that they're delivered on or just the trauma of transplantation itself, um, we incorporated a really potent anti-inflammatory into this uh, uh, transplant site to locally deliver low doses of an anti-inflammatory and prevent this uh, inflammatory response. And it was pretty successful. We saw um, earlier reversal of these syngeneic transplants and um, Sherry's been taking this a step further with um, um, different variations on, on this delivery method. Um, that have proven to be pretty successful. Um, and then the other half of my dissertation work, again, still focused on, on this problem of inflammation, was uh, developing this really interesting um, encapsulation uh, material. And so just to kind of some brief background on encapsulation, I'll be talking about more a little bit later, but essentially encapsulating islets has been around as an idea for about 50 years now. Um, and the premise is that you would um, put an islet within a material, so typically a hydrogel that would cover the surface of the islet to prevent direct contact between that donor tissue and the host immune system. And if you can eliminate that direct contact, then the idea initially was that you could eliminate the need for immunosuppression. We now know it's a little bit more complicated than that. Encapsulation by itself is probably not going to <laughs> do the whole job, but uh, it still does a really great job of eliminating that direct antigen presentation. So it does something. And at, at the time during my dissertation, um, with this focus on inflammation, uh, Sherry had stumbled across these, um, this really interesting nanoparticle system called cerium oxide nanoparticles that um, it's basically a uh, crystalline uh, nanoparticle that acts just like um, 
antioxidant enzymes, superoxide dismutase and catalase, and that it's able to uptake these um, free radicals like superoxide and convert them into neutral molecules like oxygen and in the case of catalase, take uh, hydrogen peroxide and convert it to oxygen and water. And so um, the idea was that if we could create this nanocomposite hydrogel uh, to encapsulate the cells in, we could create an antioxidant barrier that would prevent any of these um, byproducts of inflammation, these free radicals from reaching the cells um, and preserve their viability. And it yeah. was actually- Jessica, oh, where were those, where were these alginate capsules? Where were they, what context did they come from? Were they in another disease treatment? you know, a paradigm or was it just like they were, you know, no, I, think the first, I think the first was in, in the context of islets of islet, you know, I, I think at, as far as cell transplantation go, and I might goes, I might be wrong. I think islet transplantation was really just the first step towards delivering just a cell and trying to protect it. it it's amazing how early the idea of encapsulation came about and it's amazing that over 50 years, it hasn't changed all that much. Yeah. But how about the still... nanoparticle piece, the crystalline nanoparticle like that is really, I mean, that's totally advantageous, right? You get rid of all those ROS and, and just release oxygen, but yep. and it was very successful at scavenging. You can see in the, the image at the bottom, right? We hit them with a pretty high dose of yeah. superoxide, basically destroying our controls. And it was able to do um, a really great job of scavenging. And what's actually the best feature of these nanoparticles is that because of how the crystalline structure of these nanoparticles works, it's actually self-renewing. And so it constantly switches its valence of the different um, uh, seria within the structure of this crystal so that theoretically it has an infinite half-life. And so and was it would that, never run out of, you know, Yeah, that's disease. amazing. And is that, is, is that, uh, are those nanoparticles used in other contexts outside of diabetes? Is that where they originally were being used mm -hmm. or I, like brought in? I'm not sure where she ran across uh, this system initially, but um, yeah, it's used now in a lot of um, industrial contexts. Uh, it's just a very useful um, system in a lot of contexts. Yeah, and, and I've seen quite a bit. It's it's actually surprised me how much um, I, I get. It gets cited more and more every year. So I think people are finding more and more utility in tissue engineering for these nanoparticles as well. And so that was sort of the two arms of my. Um, graduate research with um, Sherry Stabler. And then when I wrapped up that, and she's actually, she's continued both of these projects, um, continuing to optimize and refine and come up with um, better ways. Sherry does a lot of like um, nano encapsulation. So sort of layer by layer surface stuff. And I believe she's relatively recently published sort of the next iteration of this as well. So she continues to work in this space. And um, we've always talked about potentially collaborating on the serious stuff again. Uh, I just haven't had the bandwidth to, to go back to using it, but it's definitely very promising. And so after that, um, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Andreas Garcia's lab for my postdoc at Georgia Tech. Um, and so Andreas, um, his lab is primarily focused in biomaterials, developing synthetic hydrogel systems in the context of tissue engineering. Um, and he was really interested and had just recently by the time I joined his lab, gotten into applying these hydrogels in the context of islet transplantation. Um, and he brought me on because he wanted someone who had um, a good amount of knowledge base in the islet area, just because there's a lot of niche, um, you know, assays and things like that, transplants, isolations, things like that. 
Um, so this was a really great opportunity to come in and, and um, work with new, a new hydrogel platform, um, as well as have the freedom to um, investigate some questions that I had um, in, in the islet transplant space. And this first paper that we, we published um, was really kind of answering a question I had, which was, you know, in Sherry's lab, we started using these extra hepatic transplant sites, this epididymal fat pad. But I was seeing at the same time, a lot of people were developing platforms to deliver for devices to deliver islets um, under the skin, you know, like Viasite's device. Um, right. but a lot of people were looking at the subcutaneous space because it's minimally invasive. Other people were- dead And you can remove it. Them. And you can remove it if there's like a teratoma or some kind of problem, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so my question really was, well, we know that you lose like 50 to 60% in the liver. The liver is a hostile transplant site, right? Um, so do we know though, or um, my question was, are one of these extra hepatic sites going to be superior to the other? And is there a way that we could directly evaluate, is one of these sites better and why, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, this hydrogel system that um, came out of Andreas's lab using these synthetic peg hydrogels that we could make degradable, non-degradable. It's a very versatile synthetic system. We can incorporate signaling into it, like vasculogenic signals to encourage vascularization. Um, and we can, um, it cross-links in situ. So we can use it to deliver cells and deliver them in a, a degradable hydrogel that would hopefully remodel. And ideally, the, the islets would revascularize. And so we were able to use this to directly compare in parallel different transplant sites to see if there were any differences in how islets engrafted, anything like that. And this was really answered a lot of questions for me. And what we found was that um, the vasculogenic hydrogel worked great. The islets did vascularize even without the VEGF, but the addition of VEGF uh, definitely accelerated the revascularization process. We got these really beautiful, like uh, large clusters of islets that all revascularized pretty quickly. Um, in these pictures, you can see some GFP islets and some non-GFP islets that have been revascularized in the EFP. Um, and when we directly compared the sites, so particularly sub-Q versus the omentum or epididymal fat pad in the mouse, what we found was that there was a higher degree of um, innate or inflammatory immune cells in the skin site versus the EFP, which in retrospect makes a lot of sense because it's a barrier organ, right? So yeah. it's got to have good surveillance to prevent, um, you know, microbes from penetrating the skin. Um, and so that made sense in retrospect. And additionally, um, what was a little bit surprising was that the subcutaneous site had a lower starting point with the degree of vascularization in that site relative to uh, the epididymal fat pad. And really, it was sort of that baseline amount of vascularization that we started with that um, impacted how much vasculature we were able to get and how vascularized we could get these islets. Mm -hmm. And so um, what was interesting was with the vasculogenic hydrogel, we did see improvement over uh, the hydrogel without any VEGF, um, but not enough to get a single pancreatic donor uh, functioning in the recipients, which was our big goal, right? Is in the yeah. past with the, with the liver transplant, always takes like multiple pancreata. The real goal here is preserve as many islets as possible in the transplant procedure so that we can get a single donor functioning in a patient and get that patient off of them, um, which we really weren't able to do in this context with the subcutaneous space, but was relatively easy in, in this EFP, especially with vasculogenic. And so that work really answered a lot of my questions and, and 
from there on out, I've been very focused on using the fat pad. You know, it's people have definitely shown it's possible to get uh, uh, you know mice off of insulin or, or cure mice using the sub-Q space. I think the barrier is just much higher to do it in the sub-Q space. Um, and that probably the focus needs to be on using a, a site that's more conducive to, to islet survival and function. And so um, at the same time, uh, Andres's lab was using these synthetic hydrogels to develop um, non-degradable uh, microcapsules, very similar to the alginate microcapsules that have been used for about 50 years. Um, and uh, a talented grad student in the lab, Devin Hedden, had developed this microfluidic system to generate these small peg-based capsules um, that were a bit smaller than the traditional alginate capsules. Um, so they were about 500 microns in diameter. And the advantage of that is that we've reduced the transport distances of mm -hmm. oxygen getting to the cells, and we have much better, hopefully much better survival of encapsulated cells. But the real big advantage to me by reducing the volume of material that you have when you have a graft is now the graft size is reduced substantially. And so now we could start thinking about where we could put these encapsulated cells, um, not just throwing them into the IP space, which has a lot of safety issues and um, is sort of the traditional way that people transplant these cells. And so we wanted to try and use this vasculogenic hydrogel in conjunction with these capsules in a defined transplant site so that now an encapsulated graft is retrievable. And so we delivered them with that vasculogenic hydrogel that really, really nice vascularization on the surface of these um, capsules. And the idea is hopefully that if you can establish a really high degree of vascularization at the capsule surface, then you can maintain a, that level of oxygen at the surface of the capsule and have this continuous oxygen supply. And you know, uh, compare that to the IP space, which is the traditional space that people put these capsules, where eventually, no matter the material, you get this fibrotic buildup on the capsule that's just kind of floating in the IP space and you start to wall off from localized oxygen. So the goal here was really to see if we could um, harness the remodeling of the tissue and optimize how much um, oxygen we could get to these uh, encapsulated cells. And this worked mm -hmm. um, very well. We got comparable um, uh, uh, function to alginate capsules. Um, and comparable function of PEG EFP compared to alginate IP. Um, and sort of at the same time, you know, while the reduction of material is great and, and that's been a goal to improve transport, you still have all these individual capsules, which is a concern because even though we're trying to squeeze them all into this defined transplant site, inevitably we saw escape of some of these capsules into the IP space. So we're still facing a safety issue, right? Yeah. And so simultaneously, we were working on this idea of macro encapsulation using these PEG hydrogels. So um, the idea being we could contain all of these cells or many cells in a single device that would then be easily retrievable um, and not worry about losing islets into the, into the um, ether. Um, and have so you guys ever, that. did you guys ever consider a collaboration with Amir Dolan at um, University of Galway in Ireland? She's got that dynamic soft reservoir that oscillates and um, she's got this whole thing where, she, you know, it, it's it's supposed to really, the oscillation itself, it creates enough fluid flow to alter that environment around the implant and protects fibro against fibrosis. It's really kind of cool. And, um, you know, she, she came out of MIT, I believe she was, she was, um, you know, given, um, she got the like 30 under 30 or whatever they, whatever they call it at MIT, but she's, 
it's a really interesting, it seems like it, um, you know, you guys would be a natural collaboration. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to take a look. I, I, off the top of my head, I, I don't recall seeing that, but I, I may just not remember. Um, so I'll have to go take a look at that. Okay. Sure. Um, and see how that system works. I, I do know um, some investigators with sort of similar uh, trying to design devices where you have continuous flow to, to keep transport at an optimal level um, for larger devices like this. It's definitely a lot of work in this space. Yeah. Um, Minglin Maz is working in very similar sort of mindset as, as my lab. Yeah. Um, talk to him. I'm always excited to see his work come out because it seems like we're doing very similar similar ideas, which, which means I think we're on the right track. <laughs> yeah. He came out of Dan Anderson's lab when they were pursuing Sedulon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's got that this, background. This macro encapsulation strategy, um, we had sort of the same idea that we would potentially try and vascularize the surface to improve transport, improve viability. Um, and while we did manage to get, you know, similar to over here, really nice vascularization at the surface, and in this case, it was actually in a rat omentum, so the true omentum yeah. in a larger animal model. Then we did see improvements with more vascularization and viability of the cells within the device. We did not see good function <laughs> out of these devices. And part of that was probably just transport of insulin out of these hydrogel devices. But ultimately, really, it came down to oxygen. Uh, you know, uh, one of the big features is always going to be oxygen with these cells. And so um, it, this is a big focus of my lab now. Uh, you know, I really believe in macro encapsulation being the forward direction of, of this, um, trying to get cell therapies into, into the clinic, um, just from a safety perspective and even from a manufacturing perspective. So how can we um, get cell therapies, including these stem cell derived products into patients and, and just thinking a lot about how this would work in the clinic and how it would work in a cell manufacturing context too. Um, and so my lab does a lot of thinking about um, oxygen transport, modeling oxygen transport, and thinking about how we could um, improve macro encapsulation design so that we get better transport to the cells in a comparable way to microcapsules, right? And so um, we think a lot about how we can generate high surface area to volume ratio geometries um, that would have similar uh, transport to capsules. And so one example of that is um, like this spiral design here. And so as we started to think about these complex geometries, we also started to think about, well, how are we gonna make these, <laughs> these complex geometries? And so we developed this um, uh, hydrogel injection molding system. <laughs> it's basically like a handheld um, system to generate these complex hydrogel geometries. I love um, the and ASU it's a relative ones. What? I love the ASU ones. Those are great, the little Perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always have to rep the university, right? And that's right. <laughs> we've got our Absolutely. little sparky trident here. Fantastic. Yeah, these are this is this is really interesting now. Um, what you're talking about here. Yeah. And so the the idea behind this was to um, you know, we have kind of two upcoming applications. One being if we want to do actual primary human eyelets, we would have to have a means of delivering these encapsulated eyelets or generating these macro encapsulation devices at the patient bedside. Um, so the, the doctor receives the, the eyelet prep and then he can encapsulate it at the patient bedside. Um, and we wanted something that was easy for a clinician to use, sort of intuitive, and this injection molding process really is that. 
Um, and so just about anyone can generate a, a complex geometry um, using this injection molding. And then even further than that, thinking down the line with um, cell therapies, so these stem cell derived cell products is um, how could we have a, a, a high throughput sort of manufacturing of these encapsulated cell devices um, and so injection molding is um, very amenable to high throughput manufacturing and automated manufacturing of um, typically plastic um, objects, right? Um, but in this case, um, we can use it to, uh, as basically a biofabrication technique. And hopefully we think that this would, um, we think this would scale really well with these new products that, that hopefully will be coming out soon. How um, many, so how many cells can you fit into um, model D? Uh, model 0.5 mil, oh, like the one that looks the like blood a, vessel. Yeah, like a blood vessel. Well, that's really <laughs> just more for fun. <laughs> the blood vessel thing, just to show the different like physiological. Um, I don't know how practical the um, the vasculature. So we haven't played with loading cells into this. Um, for the eyelid application, we're really focused on sort of the spiral geometry, just because mm -hmm. um, it, it maintains that high surface area to volume ratio of um, capsules. Um, while also having um, uh, just a, a compact geometry um, mm -hmm. and also having these gaps in between the arms should allow a vasculature to then um, wrap completely around each of these spiral arms. That's the hope. Um, Can you get a, into, into the, uh, the two millimeter piece, could you get an entire set of eyelids from an adult human pancreas or no? No, our initial designs here are um, for a modular device. So starting to think about just primary human eyelid preps, you never know how many eyelids you're going to get from a, uh, from a human pancreas, right? And so we've designed these to be modular where um, we're trying to get as many as we can into a single, but um, shooting for a, around 100,000 IEQ per device. And mm -hmm. that way, if you get a pancreas and let's say you get a fantastic yield of 700,000 IEQ, then you know you can pull seven of these kits off the shelf and you can do um, seven individual spirals. Um, and then the dimensions should be small enough that you can fit them all into a single momentum. Um, right. Or if you only had 300,000 IEQ, then you could grab three and, and make three spirals, for example. That's great. Um, okay, thanks for going through that. Yeah, so, so that's the, the general idea of this approach. And um, we tested it pretty extensively on um, single cells to make sure that this process isn't killing the cells. Um, really the forces that the cells are seeing are very similar to other biofabrication techniques like 3D bioprinting, things like that. So we weren't expecting too much cell death, but we wanted to double check. And especially because islets are, you know, incredibly sensitive cells, right? And so um, we even tested this on primary human islets. Um, and we found that the injection molding process didn't um, appear to damage their viability or their function. And so we're, um, uh, very pleased with that, obviously. And so now we're moving this into our um, preclinical models. Um, the COVID slowed us down a little bit, but we're finally getting into animals. Fantastic. Uh, and so doing some, I'm sorry. No, I said fantastic. I think there's a question in the audience. Is the spacing distance between each spiral an important parameter in the oxygen availability profile? It, it has not been um, in the models that we've run, um, but you know, it's really going to depend. It, there's only so much you can model, right? So we need to see what happens when we put these in vivo and see whether there's an optimal just for how the tissue remodels and whether you know, per, perhaps the vessels prefer a certain gap to actually you know, get a certain size vessel through there. Um, so we haven't really played with that 
extensively mm -hmm. yet. We're still in kind of early stages and in, in investigating um, how these vascularize in vivo just now and how they function. Um, we actually, we um, have some promising data so far in vivo, so we're happy with that. We weren't expecting um, to have too many troubles <laughs> with it, especially because What's great about this platform is it's pretty versatile. We've managed to get it working with different hydrogel platforms. So Alginet, PEG. Um, and so using traditional Alginet, we didn't really expect to see any issues with function. And so far it seems like um, primary islets uh, function comparably to um, individual microcapsules of Alginet. Um, but you know, we have to do a lot more studies. This is very preliminary, preliminary yeah. data. That's still, still encouraging. Yeah. Um, yes, we're happy about it. <laughs> And so um, kind of continuing in this area, you know, alongside of our preclinical studies, we also um, recently started a, um, uh, well, not really recently, we've been working on this for a little bit, but uh, we have a collaboration with um, the, uh, Dr. Vikram Kodabagar, who's also faculty here at ASU. And um, the Kodabagar lab develops these uh, oximetry probes, these magnetic resonance uh, oximetry probes. So basically these probes are able to um, give a readout of the oxygen tension um, in vivo longitudinally. And so we are really excited about this because obviously we care a lot yeah. about oxygen. Yes. And so we've been um, uh, basically developing these uh, hydrogel composites with these uh, oximetry probes to investigate the actual um, uh, longitudinally, the oxygen within these devices after we transplant. Um, and so we're just about to put this into um, uh, animals as well. And we've gotten everything kind of optimized in vitro and we're really excited to see um, whether we can uh, in real time delineate the differences in oxygen between different kind of encapsulation devices um, and even different transplant sites. And so um, kind of coming back to my postdoc work, half of my lab is very focused on encapsulation as a means to hopefully limit how much immunosuppression we need. We know now though that um, encapsulation on its own is not going to eliminate the immune response. That was the original idea of encapsulation, but um, we've learned a lot more in immunology since um, the idea originally came up. And so um, just for a little bit of a background, um, how tissue is normally recognized uh, when it's transplanted um, if it's not encapsulated is um, through two different pathways, but um, one of the strongest pathways is through direct contact, right? So um, host immune cells are directly in contact with the surface of the donor islet or perhaps a passenger APC antigen presenting cell that was on the islet. Um, and that uh, initiates the immune response. But even when we encapsulate islets, no matter how we design these encapsulation materials, if we wanna design them for rapid efflux of insulin, inevitably we're gonna have rapid uh, transport of antigens out of this capsule because uh, there are many antigens that are smaller than insulin. So there's really no way that we're going to be able to design these capsules to prevent antigen shedding, which will inevitably be picked up by um, host antigen presenting cells and initiate a immune reaction. Yeah, they have a memory. Of, uh, you well, know, it's not, even, it's not even just the autoimmunity, although that is awful. <laughs> yeah, a, a huge barrier in islet transplantation, um, but just initiating this. And so it's harder for them to home to the cells because it's more difficult for them to find them. Um, but some of my data, um, particularly that uh, anti uh, American Journal of Transplantation paper with the microencapsulation in the EFP, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we did a really interesting study where we transplanted transgenic luciferase expressing islets and tracked their survival, their actual viability long-term. And we found this sort of gradual destruction of the islets, which was sort of like, to me, sort of direct evidence of this sort of smoldering immune response that you get against the islets, even with that capsule in place. And so um, that's been kind of known. And so there's a lot of um, you know, work in trying to directly modulate the immune system, whether in conjunction with encapsulation or just as a strategy on its own. And so some of the other work that um, I had the opportunity to be a part of in Andreas's lab at um, Georgia Tech and in collaboration with uh, Haval Shirwan and uh, Esma Yolki, uh, who I, I still collaborate with now, who are immunologists. Uh, the Shirwan and Yolku lab had um, developed this fast ligand uh, engineered protein that enabled us in this collaboration to now tether these immunomodulators to biomaterials. And so um, the two main immunomodulators that uh, we investigated was uh, fast ligand and pd one And these are two molecules that are very common in cancer. And so the original idea was uh, basically to mimic how is cancer hiding from the immune system, right? And a lot of people go to cancer as a model because it, it has immune escape, right? Yeah. Um, and so we saw pretty promising results just using biomaterials presenting these immunomodulatory proteins within the transplant site next to the islets. So not encapsulating the islets, these islets are fully exposed, but having basically an off-the-shelf immunomodulatory material that we could deliver with the cells to prevent the rejection. Um, And we uh, did this in combination with a short course, low-dose immune suppression um, based on some of uh, the Shirwan Lab's past work investigating this molecule. Um, And with that combination, uh, we were able to get um, around 50 to 60%, depending on fast ligand or PDL1, long-term survival, um, relatively long-term survival of these grafts. Um, And so that was very, very promising. We were very excited about that. And some of the, um, I haven't seen some of the further data that's coming out. I'm looking forward to the paper because it's been since I left, but um, I think this work has continued to show promise. Um, But as I was starting to um, think about how I wanted to approach generating tolerance against the islet graphs in my own lab, I started to think about, you know, this model system that people typically use, which is cancer, right? And while cancer does a good job of immune escape, it has kind of a low bar to escape from the immune system because it's your own tissue, right? And so you don't have this MHC mismatch like you have in transplantation and definitely don't have the autoimmunity, right? right. Um, and so it's, it's not as high of a bar for it to hide. And so while these molecules definitely showed some promise, you can see that we're not completely escaping this immune response. And we still needed a little bit of immune suppression, which is not ideal. And so that led me to think about, you know, what model systems could we use that would be more, would be a stronger, a stronger model system. And so that got me thinking about basically the only system wherein you have uh, in human biology, where you have a completely allogeneic tissue, not rejected by the host. Um, And that the only system where you have that is pregnancy. Now you have some systems in in our biology where semi-allogeneic cells escape immune rejection, right? So um, testes and ovaries, but those are not fully allogeneic and they're single cells, right? Mm-hmm. And right. we're thinking about like a full organism <laughs> escaping immune attack and an allogeneic one as well in the case of surrogacy, fully allogeneic. 
the only model really is pregnancy. So it's a really powerful model. Completely. And so I, and it was surprising to me that there wasn't work in this, not a lot of work in this area or trying to translate these mechanisms. Um, a lot of it was focused on cancer. And, and so that's really been the focus of my lab is um, uh, basically we call it uh, placental mimicry. And so the premises and how the placenta works and the placenta is really the mediator of this immune tolerance against the fetus. And so the way the placenta works is it consists of, um, it's completely fetal tissue and it consists of these cells called trophoblasts. And so these trophoblasts are primarily what is in contact with the maternal tissue. Um, and these trophoblasts, really, really interesting, I found, very similar system to our encapsulation system, yeah. wherein these trophoblasts essentially present, present a inert surface um, to the maternal uh, tissue. Um, and so they don't present classical uh, MHC, HLA, ABC. They, but they have HLA-G. They present HLA-G, HLA-E, which have these um, sort of tolerogenic, they're not as well understood as the classical HLA, I think. Right. Um, I still keep doing deep dives trying to understand how HLA-G works. Um, but basically they, they uh, certainly don't activate immune cells against these tissues and even promote a, a tolerogenic response to these placenta. And what's really interesting though, is it's similar to encapsulation we're presenting this inert surface, um, the placenta cannot prevent uh, antigens from being shed to the maternal side. And so um, again, just like encapsulation. <laughs> and so what's interesting is how the placenta modulates this is that uh, these trophoblasts secrete a suite of tolerogenic factors um, mm -hmm. that educate the local antigen or the local uh, immune cells, so antigen presenting cells that are scavenging these antigens, educate them towards a more tolerogenic phenotype um, so that what results is not an, uh, uh, a hostile antigen recognition of this tissue, but actually a tolerogenic, antigen-specific tolerogenic response uh, towards this um, fetal tissue, which is exactly what we are looking for in right. you know, delivering encapsulated cells or even unencapsulated cells. And so um, a, a big focus, and at least 50% of my lab is focused on um, ways that we can use this model system um, and some of the mechanisms that the placenta uses to avoid uh, escape or avoid uh, rejection um, uh, from the maternal immune system. And so uh, kind of an in initial steps towards this, um, in this direction, we've actually got a great collaborator in trophoblast biology, biology, uh, Mana Perist. Um, and so she's definitely gonna be a lot of help as we dive into this new space. Where um, is she but, located? Uh, she's at UCSD. Yeah, and um, she's worked for years in this area. And so she's, she's been very helpful already. Um, and so as kind of an initial step um, is what we've been doing is taking these trophoblasts and trying to generate sort of complex organoid. Um, so basically little artificial placentas in uh, um, a 3D biomaterial tissue culture platform. So trying to generate um, structures that are similar to what we would see in the placenta um, and play with the architecture of the organoids that we're generating uh, in the lab to see what kind of immunomodulatory mechanisms these cells have. It's, we're really interested in teasing out the different immunomodulatory factors that the different cell subtypes secrete because there's at least three 
subtypes of trophoblasts, and it's unclear to us which one would be optimal. <laughs> if one of them is more immunomodulatory than the other, what different factors right. do they see? Could you re-engineer so of- these types of cells to be insulin producers? If so, which ones? Ekaterine Bursvili over there in Geneva is, um, you know, her team, her group is looking at uh, insulin producing organoids that they engineer from islet and amniotic epithelial cells. Um, Her her postdoc is Fanny LeBreton. She's on the cutting edge of that. But yeah, um, you guys have a lot in common in like what you're thinking about, which I love. And hopefully, you know, um, you'll both be there in our upcoming um, State of the Science, which is featuring women scientists. Um, I'd love to hear you guys talk about, you know, your approaches together, because this is so I I just think this is such a fascinating model system. Yeah, we're very excited about it. Um, And uh, this, as you mentioned before, this was um, what I got the new innovator for. Um, kind of a unique approach to um, to trying to um, basically eliminate immunosuppression. Initial stages, the initial plan is is to um, integrate this with um, either encapsulated islets or ideally unencapsulated islets, because a lot of my past work has shown how critical it is to vascularize islets. Um, and then ultimately, um, you know, we we have somewhat of a plan to generate uh, essentially a tolerogenic vaccine using this system where we could potentially induce this tolerance prior to um, the delivery of a graft. Now this would work fantastic with a, um, uh, you know, a stem cell derived cell therapy for type one diabetes, right? Because we have, we would know the, the haplotype of the tissue that we're transplanting before we do it. Um, and it would work really well with live organ donors like kidney, things like that. Probably more challenging with any hepatobaric donors, um, but you know, we'll have to see where this goes. And it's again, very pie in the sky. That's where we'd love to get to. And we hypothesized and the reviewers thought that it was possible. So, <laughs> so yeah. we're trying it. I mean, it's very innovative. I mean, you've got some you know, proof of concept here that this could be a really exciting space. And I just, I mean, I cannot wait to see where you go with this. I mean, it's really, it's a really neat system. Yeah, we're, we're definitely very excited. I'm glad other people are excited too. And I hopefully um, any trainees, postdocs, grad students out there who are looking for a position, working on some interesting stuff. Um, we have opportunities available both on that project. So um, the placental mimicry, as well as um, encapsulated islet oxygen in vivo. We have a collaborative R01 to, um, on that MRI oximetry project. And yeah, and so um, here's just a recently, we did a, a little gingerbread house making contest. So some of the students made it up to that. Um, and, you know, obviously wouldn't be here without my fantastic students that are generating, uh, generating a lot of this data. So it's a fun, yeah, outside, yeah, fun outside the lab engineering project. Here. Yeah, exactly. I have a, there's a question from someone in the audience um, and she's wondering about, so it's feasible the females with type one titer out high antibodies to their own beta cells may not attack fetal insulin. Does fetal insulin work as well? Huh? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that answer. <clears throat> Obviously, <laughs> if anyone in the audience, anyone else knows it, it'd be great, but it, I don't know. it's curious. That's interesting. I hadn't, I don't know it. I don't know much about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it isn't totally in this wheelhouse, but it could, 
I mean, it might have some impact on on that whole uh, fetal maternal interface. Who knows? Well, maybe the next, but next time we speak, you'll you'll have uh, stumbled across something that's of interest there. But this is an amazing project, um, amazing approach, and I just I wish you guys, uh, you know, speed and discovery, <clears throat> um, and uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your week. Thank you too. Bye-bye to all. Bye.